Today we are continuing in our last message in our Advent series, and his name shall be. We've, we've been working through the names in the prophecy of Isaiah, specifically in Isaiah chapter 9, when Isaiah gives a, a birth announcement. He says, I know the Assyrians are coming, I know that there's trouble on the horizon, but nevertheless, he says, there's no gloom for us. Nevertheless, darkness is going to yield to light. Nevertheless, joy will be increased because a new leader, a new king, the Messiah, is coming, he says in chapter 9, verse 6. And so we've been walking through those names. Chapter 9, verse 6 of Isaiah says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We've walked through all of those different names, Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And then we looked back a little bit in chapter 7. Isaiah also says that his name will be called Emmanuel in chapter 7, verse 14. Emmanuel, God with us. And last week we looked at that name. And we walked, as we looked at that name, that idea of God being with us, we walked through the Bible, starting at the very, very beginning in Genesis at the creation story and the perfect relationship that Adam and Eve had with God. There was no sin. It was not distorted at all. They had a perfect relationship. And God and Adam and Eve, we, we infer from Scripture that they actually had time together in the garden, that they, that they walked together in the garden God, after, after Satan tempts Adam and Eve and sin enters into the, into the garden, we see that God comes to have that time with them and instead they're hiding from him. And so we know that God regularly had time with Adam and Eve and, and that relationship was perfect. But sin entered into the picture and when that happened, everything changed in all of history. Sin entered into the world and our relationship with God was distant. It was shattered because of that sin. We were separated from God and, and it was never the same after that. There was a distant relationship from Adam and Eve's descendants all the way through. We kind of walked through the Old Testament last week and looked at that and saw the distance in that relationship. And then... As we get to Exodus and we get to the story of Moses, we see that God begins to show up now in a different way. God shows up in a burning bush and, and Moses has an experience with God in the burning bush. He begins to show up in plagues. He begins to show up in great miracles. God begins to show up in lots of different ways. And, and in fact, he becomes a pillar of cloud that they follow during the day. He becomes a fire that they follow at night. They see God they see God as, they, as the Israelites follow him, specifically after the Exodus. It's during that time, too, that Moses gets the instructions to build a tabernacle, to build a, a tent home for God. And last week, I showed you in Scripture where, where God actually comes and, and descends onto that tabernacle. And the Israelites know where he is, where he lives in that place. He moves the cloud or the fire move, the people follow it, they reset the tent up, and God is present with them. Later, during the time of the kings, when, when David and Solomon have their reign as kings over Judah and Israel, 
They build not, not they, they get away from the temple or the tabernacle, they build a temple. Again, at, at the conclusion of that, of, of that building process, of the conclusion of the construction, Solomon prays a prayer, and when, when he does that, the Spirit of God moves into the temple. They actually see the cloud come and move into the building, and they know this is where God is. He's here. He lives in this temple. He has a special place in the temple where his presence is. And then it goes silent. They see, they hear from God through the prophets for a while, but then it goes silent. For 400 years, the prophets go quiet. Seemingly, God himself goes quiet. And then we come to John chapter one and we read this. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God, who lived in the tabernacle, in in the temple, now lives in a man, in Jesus. And last week we talked about how that idea, that idea of Emmanuel, God with us, that God moved into the man of Jesus, how that impacted, how that changed God's presence with us. And then, following the crucifixion, As Jesus ascends into heaven, he then sends his spirit, the Holy Spirit, who shows up on the day of Pentecost, shows up in that room with the disciples, shows up as the wind whips through and fire begins to dance on their heads. God shows up and now doesn't live in a tabernacle any longer, doesn't live in a temple, doesn't live in the person of Jesus here on earth, but now lives inside of believers. His spirit is at work in us. Christ in us is our hope of glory, Paul tells us in Colossians. God with us, he is our hope. And he begins to transform us and change us and conform us more and more into the image of his son, into the image of Jesus. And today, I want to continue that theme. There was too much that we could talk about last week about the idea of Emmanuel God with us. There's too many trails that we could travel down that we couldn't do it in one day. So today I want to just look at that idea a little bit more. This passage is on the screen from John chapter 1 verse 14. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. I think our question, my question, as I look at this passage as I think through it is why? Why did the word become flesh? For thousands of years, people had lived. All through the Old Testament times, as we just talked, God, God was leading his people, and he never showed up in, he never became flesh. There were times when, when the angel of the Lord might come and show up in a way that, that appeared to be flesh or appeared to be human-like, but God does not show up in flesh. For for thousands of years, it goes that way. Why? Why now? Why at this point? Why does Jesus come 
and put on flesh. Why does the word put on flesh at this point? And then when he does come, why does he only come for 30-some years? Why does God decide to put on flesh, come to earth, and live just 33 years, 34 years? And why, if he's only going to be here for 30-some years, why does he come as a baby and start at the very beginning and have to work through that whole life? Wouldn't, shouldn't he just come as a man and have 30 years of, of real teaching time as an adult human? Why? Why does it happen this way? Why did the Word become flesh? Born as a baby. Why? Did the word put on flesh? That's my question this morning. I think there's three reasons why that we can find here in Scripture. Why the word put on flesh and came in this way. The first reason I want to talk about this morning is that the word put on flesh so that he might be grasped. So that he might be grasped. And there's a lot of meaning to that word. I don't choose that word lightly this morning. There's lots of ways that that word grasped can go. It can, can mean actually physically held. It can mean, it can mean just being understood or, or finally being realized. All of those things, I think, apply to what we're talking about this morning. That the word put on flesh so that he might be grasped. During those 400 years of silence, as we talked about last week. In fact, if you were here last week, we actually had not 400 years, but we had some moments of silence here in the sanctuary. And we got anxious. We got antsy. We wondered what was going to happen and what else was going to come. And, 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 and I know some of you have talked to me about it. You, you felt that way too. I, I certainly felt that way as I stood here in silence. But for 400 years, for 400 years, people waited. They waited to hear from God. They waited to, to know that God was there. For 400 years, they had been longing for God. For 400 years, they had been reviewing and reminding themselves of the promises of the Old Testament. For 400 years, they had been going back through what they, what they had, had heard and known, and, and some of them maybe even could hold the words that they had been given. But for 400 years, they had to remember those promises. For 400 years, they had to say, where are you, God? Where are you? Have you forgotten about us, God? Have you forgotten that we're here? Have you forgotten your promise? Have you forgotten the hope that you had promised to us through Isaiah, through all of the prophets, the hope that you had promised to us when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? You promised. You promised a rescue. Where is that promise? I can't see you, God. I can't hear you, God. I don't know where you are, God. I think people would have said, I know the promise, but I don't feel the security, and I don't know the certainty. 
Does that resonate at all with you? It does for me. I know the promise, but I don't feel the security, and I don't see the certainty. I think the word became flesh. I think the word became man. I think he came as a baby so that he could be grasped, so that he could be held on to, so that we might know for sure the promise is real. We don't have 400 years of silence. God now, as I said earlier, lives inside those of us who believe. We hear him through his word, we know him. But there's still times when life gets out of control. There's still times when we cannot hear in the way that we want to hear and things begin to spin out of control for us. The holidays come and our family time did not go quite like we wanted it to. The test came back positive. The promotion that I was hoping for didn't come. All of those things begin to build up and we begin to lose control and we say, God, where are you? I can't hear you. I don't, I don't sense you. I don't see you. I don't feel you. I don't know that you're here. I know there's a promise, but I don't feel the certainty and security of it. We oftentimes, we oftentimes in our lives need security blankets. We often need something that we can hold on to. Those of you who are parents probably remember fondly the security blankets that your children had. Maybe, and maybe it wasn't a blanket. Maybe it was a, a stuffed animal of some kind. Or maybe it was a, a pacifier. Or maybe it was something else. But you know you know what it's like when your kid has something that they have to have in order to calm down or they have to have in order to go to sleep. My kids, at least two of my kids, had blankets that they carried for years. I remember Jonah was my oldest, so he was the one that we had to figure all these things out with first. And he had a blanket for a long, long time. And one time we went somewhere and we forgot it there. And we left and got home and we knew tonight's the night. And he did fine. It was no big deal. He was 18 by that time. So it was, <laughs> I'm, I'm teasing. That's not true. <laughs> that's not true. But you know, you know what it's like. You know what it's like when your kid has something, a security item that they have to have. That sometimes we just need something to hold on to, something to feel secure with. There's a story, I think lots of us have probably heard a story like this, if not this exact story, but there's a story of children during World War II in Europe. Uh, they had lost their parents and they were being gathered together in, in orphanages, really, to be, to be cared for. And, and they couldn't sleep at night. There was no way for them to, to, to sleep through the night. And the, and the people who were in charge of this particular orphanage were, were, were frustrated. They were baffled. They didn't know what to do. And, and one night, they were baking bread for the next day. 
And one of the children came and, and held the, the bread. They hugged it. And the, and the leaders began to realize that maybe this was, the, maybe this was what they were looking for. And, and so that night, that, that child took that bread and went to bed with the bread. And it wasn't long before all of the children would go to bed at night with a piece of bread in their hand, knowing that they had bread that day to eat, and now they're going to for sure have something to eat the next day. They were sleeping with bread, but they were sleeping. They felt that security. They knew that tomorrow's needs would be taken care of, and so they could rest. The word becomes flesh so that we might be able to grasp him, so that we might be able to hold on, so that we might be able to sleep with bread. For us, it's not, it's not baking a loaf every night, but Jesus makes it pretty clear for us in John chapter six. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. The word put on flesh so that he could be grasped, so that he could be held, so that he could be known, so that he could be realized, so that he could be understood. The word put on flesh so that he might become real to us. He might become real to us. In Hebrews, we read the scripture last week, but in Hebrews chapter one, it says this, Long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God sent his son so that he might speak, so that he might help us to better understand, to help us to have that security. The word became flesh, and then we know he ascends to heaven. Spirit is now at work inside of us, but I don't want to neglect today the idea that we also have a physical word to hold on to. It's not in the person of Jesus anymore, but it's in, the, it's in Scripture. It's in the Word. And I don't want to trivialize that this morning. We have, for us, we have the life that Jesus lived. We have the words that Jesus spoke. We have the lessons that Jesus taught. We have the disciples and the apostles who heard those lessons. We have their descriptions and, and their explanation of it in the word. The word is important. And this morning, I would be remiss, I think, this morning if I didn't say, as you're thinking through your new year resolutions, intentions, hopes, dreams, that you might think about making the word a priority in the midst of that. I have in the foyer out there, you probably saw as you came in, there's a number of different Bible reading plans, ways for you to be in the Word. I would hope, I would hope this morning that you might take one of those. It's 
lots of us do it through our phones, through apps on our phones, the Version app or the Faith Life Bible study app. Any of those things are helpful. But find a way that works for you. Find a way that you can get consistently in the Word so that you might be able to hear and know the promise and that you might find security through the words of Christ and through the Word of God. Get into the Word. There's one more. As I say that, I'm being reminded that that Dan McCarlson would also love to have a group together that reads the Word together and then comments online um, to encourage one another. He's not here this morning, but he has asked um, if there's others of you that would like to do that with him and to be, go into that process with him, you should ensure contact Dan and visit about that as well. The word became flesh so that he might be held onto, so that he might be grasped, so that he might be understood, so that we might remember and realize the promise kept. But the second reason why, a second reason, a second reason why the word put on flesh I believe, is so that he might better understand. The word put on flesh so that he might better understand. And as I say that, as I typed it this week, as you hear it today, you probably think that's could be for sure blasphemous. How does the word, who was at the very beginning, who was with God and who was God, how can he better understand? He already has all knowledge. He knows all things. He's, he's, not, even, he's not even strapped to our time. He knows all things before time existed and knows about all things that will happen for all of eternity. He is God. How can he better understand and when I say that this morning, I, I think it comes right out of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews says this. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. The word put on flesh so that he might sympathize, be able to sympathize with us, be able to understand where we are, who we are, why we are, who we are. Jesus put on flesh so that he might serve us, so that he might understand our temptations. And the easy question in the midst of that is to say, how? How can Jesus of, of 0 B.C., of 0 A.D., how can the Jesus of 2,022 years ago, how can he know the temptations that you and I have today? The world was radically different when Jesus was here. Again, he just lived that short 33 years or so. It was radically different for him than it is for you and I. How can he know the temptations that I face? How can he know? 
And then we're reminded about the temptations that we know Jesus faced. Even, even if we just talk about the time when Jesus is met by Satan in the desert and tempted even there, we know that he was tempted in the same ways that you and I are. That first temptation, he's been fasting. Satan says, Jesus, just turn this rock into bread. Satisfy that longing inside you, that hunger, that you're, 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 you're hungry. You need something to eat. Just satisfy your basic desires. Is that a temptation that we have? Yeah, it is for me. Satan tempts Jesus and says, you can, you can gain fame. You can be the most popular one ever. Is that a temptation that we face? To be known? He says, you can rule over everything that you see. You can have power over people. Is that a temptation that we have? Yeah. They look differently for us now because of our culture, because of our technology, but the root, the root of these temptations is exactly the same. The root of our temptation is that we want our own way. And Jesus puts on flesh so that he might sympathize with those temptations, so that he might know what they feel like, so that he might be able to understand exactly the temptations that you and I face. He puts on flesh so that he might enter in and get right into our lives to understand those hard things, those messy things. He came, he came so that we might know that he understands is probably the better way to say it. He came so that we might know that he understands, that he's been a part of it, that he was here. The third thing that I want to talk about this morning is that I think the word put on flesh so that he might die. The word put on flesh so that he might die. Earlier in this series, one of those days, I talked about how can a God be born as we looked at Isaiah 9, 6. How can, how can a God come and, and be born? That doesn't make any sense. How can a God come and die makes just as much sense to us. And yet, and yet it's clear, it's clear that death is exactly the punishment that must be taken to absorb the penalty of sin. And so how? Can that all be put together? John, when he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, John knows that that's not an easy thing to comprehend and not an easy thing to understand and certainly not an easy thing to digest. In fact, we know, we've looked at, at it in our fellowship at 1 John, where John is, is directly rebuking the idea of the Gnostics who, who say, Evil, our bodies, real things are evil and, and that, that there's no way that, that Jesus could have come and, and had a real physical body because we know how sinful our bodies are. We know how evil our flesh is. And 
and Jesus, a, a God, could not have come and put on this flesh that would have ruined his holiness. And so John, specifically in 1 John, he, he talks about that exact idea. And he says, if you remember, as we walked through that series, he says, he says this Jesus, we've, we've, we've heard him, we've walked with him, we know him, we've studied him, we've seen him. We know that he is human. That his flesh is real flesh. That his body is a real body. That he lived as fully man. We've heard him, we've seen him, we've touched him, we've studied him. He is man. John had to fight, had to fight that idea of Gnosticism. He had to fight the idea that God might have just come as an apparition, might have just showed up as a, as a, as a ghost and pretended to be human but never really was. John had to fight that idea. John had to fight the idea that maybe God just chose maybe just chose a, a good man and entered into him at his baptism and then departed from him right before his crucifixion. John fought those ideas because he knew that the word became flesh so that he might die for you and I. Paul writes about that in Philippians. We've actually talked about this verse in this series already. In Philippians chapter two, he says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The word became flesh so that he might come so that he might die for you and I. It's not just Paul's verses in Philippians that help us to see that and to know it. Jesus himself tells us that. If we read on in John chapter six from the verse I quoted earlier about Jesus being the bread of life, he goes on to tell us more about that in John chapter six. He says to those who are arguing about that idea, how can he be the bread of life? He says, don't grumble among yourselves in verse 43. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is God has seen the Father. And then he says in verse seven, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, Jesus says. If we read on, the Jews dispute themselves and they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus then says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, 
I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my body is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. Whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The word became flesh so that you and I might have life. The word became flesh so that you and I might have hope. The word became flesh so that he might die so that we might live. God made he who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might have the righteousness of God. That's our hope this morning, is that we might trust in him. We're going to celebrate that hope represented in communion this morning. As I already mentioned, you have a insert in your bulletin, a communion invitation. Again, if you can live under this invitation, you are more than welcome, invited, encouraged to celebrate communion with us this morning. We will take bread. We will take juice. They will remind us and represent for us this morning his body, his blood that give us life. I'm grateful this morning that we have the opportunity to do that. Grateful that we have hope because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That he became flesh so that he might die and take our place. The worship team is going to come and lead us this morning. The elders are going to come and direct us as we go through today. They'll come to your pew and dismiss your pew to come through and to take the elements here. If you haven't had communion with us in the last couple of years since COVID, we have Our two elements are stacked together in in two cups, but stacked together in one spot uh, in the tray. So we just ask you to take both cups out. The bottom cup will have the bread. The top cup will have the juice. Uh, There's four different spots here that the elders will direct you to. If you're in the balcony, there's a spot for you at the back of the balcony, at the top of the balcony, with a tray there for you as well. Worship team will lead us. The elders will direct us, and we will celebrate in communion together. Just take your cup, hold it, and we'll take those things together.
Jesus, we hunger and thirst for you, Lord, as we remember your sacrifice. We see the wounds from your hands and Extravagant love, oh how great the price. Now our lives are yours. The priceless blood of Jesus, this gracious call, our life spring overflowing, poured out for us. He has conquered every for the ones who trust in Him. Jesus, we hunger and thirst for You, Lord, as we remember Your from 
your hands and pierced side Extravagant love, oh how great the price Now our lives are yours This represents the flesh that the Word put on when He came to dwell among us. Take and eat and be grateful that He did so. And this represents the blood that was shed for our sins, yours and mine. Take and drink and be grateful. Our benediction this morning comes from Colossians chapter 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thank you for coming this morning.